Good evening, Saints. Good evening. We sure are happy to be back at Foundation Study. After taking three weeks off to determine our next book and our direction, it's rather satisfying to be able to say with confidence that we have, in fact, discerned the Lord's will in this matter. All of us are about to embark on an adventure together. It's inspired by historical narrative. We'll explore autobiographical accounts of eyewitnesses to events that occurred in the Middle East 2,500 years ago. You'll have the opportunity to thoroughly examine Aramaic legal documents. And they came from ancient pagan cultures, so that's going to be fun. You're about to encounter the stories of Ezra, whose name means health, and Nehemiah, whose name means comfort. You're about to immerse yourselves into Adonai's faithfulness in helping and comforting the people of Israel because Adonai's promises are completely and totally trustworthy. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Now, these works will be set within the historical backdrop of the Persian Empire which you have all become familiar with from our 10-week study of the book named Esther. You are about to encounter men like Zerubbabel, who courageously rebuilt the temple of God and restored the spirit of a nation. You will fall in love with Ezra as he boldly purifies the soul of the nation. You will admire and imitate Nehemiah as he walks faithfully to establish the strength and security of the nation. The work that you are about to embrace is the basis for synagogues and rabbinical thought within Judaism even today. Its importance to your life could never be overstated. As a body, you will wrestle with both the free agency of man's will and the awesome sovereignty of the God over Israel. Now in our community, we will learn that the sacred always, say always, Always. the sacred always precedes our security. And there can be no other pattern that arrives in the holiness of God. The Lord has been leading us to this moment and doing so with great intentionality. It is not an accident or coincidence that we immersed ourselves into Chronicles where it was said that no remedy could be found for the discipline that must come upon Adonai's people. Having moved on to the life and historical setting of Jeremiah, where you encountered the immutable promises of God, even in the midst of horrifying judgments that eliminated bad figs and also revealed excellent figs, you came to understand the national election and the destiny of Israel. This prepared you to immerse yourselves in the prophecies of Daniel that outlined history in advance for the kingdom of God on earth that Israel is the center of. Now that you've spent ten weeks in Esther, discovering that Adonai is always at work in his plan to conform Israel into his own image, you will rejoice to see Zerubbabel reestablish the heart of the nation. You'll rejoice to see Ezra Restore the soul of the nation. Come on. And also Nehemiah restoring the body and the strength of the nation. Come on. Covering these works will reinforce your view of the Tanakh itself. That is comprised of the Torah that directs your heart. And the prophets that warn your soul. 
as well as the writings that teach you how to channel your strength into faithfulness to the God of Israel. You are about to be advantaged in every way. So we will be studying Ezra and Nehemiah as one unit. To accomplish this, we will start in Ezra and follow the chapter progressions through Nehemiah in the order that they appear in your Bible. However, the content of both works is related and interdependent as a singular story. This is because the books were originally considered a singular work named Ezra. Look at this slide from New Ungers. Ezra, book of, in ancient Hebrew scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah were classified as one book called the book of Ezra. Since 1448, Hebrew Bibles have contained the twofold arrangement of Ezra and Nehemiah as in our English renderings. Thanks, many of the features of our modern publishing form and influence your thoughts in ways that Adonai did not intend. For nearly 2,000 years, Ezra and Nehemiah were considered a singular story. Taught that way, understood that way, they even appeared within the same scroll. We have that in mind, we have another slide for you. In the Talmud Tractate Baba Bakhtra 15a, the rabbis and scribes regarded Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. Josephus also considered the two books to be one, with the number of Old Testament books was given as 22. Some church fathers, such as Melito of Sardis and Jerome, thought of them as one book. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Older Testament, also grouped the two books as one, referring to them as Second Ezra to distinguish them from an apocryphal book known as First Ezra. Since this is from Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, just commenting on this known fact. The technical debates that focus on alleged differences between Ezra and Nehemiah are usually the domain of unbelieving academics. They literally miss the forest for the trees. It's, true. it's important that you connect the works known as Ezra and Nehemiah in order to understand a singular story that is being told in a spirit of holiness, and it's being conveyed to all mankind through all ages, and it regards the faithfulness of God to his promises to his people. We're going to take a look at, a, at our, another slide. This is from the New Bible Commentary. It says, although the books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear as two separate works in our English Bibles, they were originally two parts of a single work, and they should be studied together as a single whole. Not only is ancient Jewish tradition clear about this, the division into two books being probably an innovation by the Christian church, but more importantly, the contents of the books themselves demonstrated. In particular, the second half of Nehemiah serves as a climax to all that has gone before, not least the work of Ezra, as his prominence in Nehemiah 8 makes clear. Although Nehemiah 1.1 obviously starts a new section in the work, it marks no more of a break in the narrative than does Ezra 7.1, where Ezra himself is first introduced. You know, Christians... 
We love to systematize. We love to segment things in our efforts to better understand them. Unfortunately, the exact opposite is often the result of these actions. These habits are uniquely Gentile. They're uniquely Greek habits. We tend to emphasize the differences between things like spirit, soul, and body. However, it is probably more beneficial to explore the connections between the three parts of a singular man. Similarly, the Godhead can be examined from the standpoint of the unique facets of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's probably more beneficial to comprehend the plural unity or the oneness of God. The same is true of the Word of God. It can be thought of as three distinct parts, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. However, it's an extraordinary mistake to think of it as anything other than one Word of God that conveys one narrative and one message to mankind. Well, the work of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are also segments of a singular work with a singular message. So let's start today by seeing a significant connection between 2 Chronicles, which we finished that study back in January of 2021, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that we are delivering, uh, diving into today. So consider the way that 2 Chronicles closes. The 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. Are y'all awake? Y'all with us? Oh, yes. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was, you remember this? No remedy. One of the first things that you should notice is that compassion and pity were the motivators for Adonai to persistently and repeatedly send prophets to Israel. After detailing the compassion of Adonai and the events that led up to the unavoidable act of discipline and refinement, the author of 2 Chronicles goes into the historical narrative of events as they played out in history. This is because the writer is writing from a vantage point that is after the events and is reflecting upon history in his past. So we're going to pick up in verse 17, and as just mentioned, he's recording events that have happened in the past from the author's perspective. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or age. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Thanks the writer of Second Chronicles, he just summarized a period of history that began with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, during Nebuchadnezzar's time, and the third siege of Jerusalem in 586 BC, all of the way to the time of Persian dominion, beginning in about 539 BC. 
The writer is able to do this because he's writing well after the events and he is summarizing history that occurred before his time. This leap of nearly 50 years, it's assuming something. It assumes that the audience is already familiar with the events of Jeremiah and Daniel between these two markers, as well as the surrounding history during this time frame. In our Daniel studies, we covered the rise of the Persian Empire, but this will refresh your memory on some of those key details. You want to remember some things you learned in Daniel? Yes. Regarding the conquest of Babylon, it was on October 12th, 539 BC, and there should be a slide on the screen right now, Cyrus General captured Babylon without a battle. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which thus rendered the flood defenses useless and enabled the invaders to march through the riverbed to enter by night. What year was that? 539. The Persians were a world power for decades before this event. However, the year 539 BC is when they overtook Babylon and they became the world power. From the perspective of anyone that was living in Babylon at the time, this would be thought of as the first year of the reign of Cyrus because it's the first year that he would be reigning over you. You may also remember that when Cyrus took Babylon, this happened. When Cyrus made his grand entrance, Daniel presented him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, which contained a personal letter addressing him by name. We will refresh your memory on those details as we get into Ezra 1 tonight. But so that we don't distract you from the connection between 2 Chronicles and Ezra, Let's keep moving in the text. The writer is now going to move to the result of the Babylonian captivity in verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah. The thing to note is that between 586 B.C., which was the time of the third siege by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and the conquering of Babylon by the Persian. Oh, which was the... I'm sorry, let me start that over. The thing to note here is that between 586 B.C., which was the time of the third siege by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and the conquering of Babylon by the Persians under Cyrus in 539 B.C., this time period is roughly 47 years. The land still enjoyed Sabbath rest, and the temple was still desolate after the Persians came into power for another 23 years before the 70 years were actually completed. So we have a slide to, to help with this. The fall of Babylon was not the end of the 70 years of desolation. So you see, the third siege of Jerusalem was in 586. The fall of the Babylonian Empire was in 539. Punch this into a calculator, you get 47, 47 years. That's true. The Sabbath rest, it is true. <laughs> Trust me. The Sabbath rest and desolations was declared to be 70 years. 23 years still remain. How many of you have failed to realize off the top of your head 
that the fall of Babylon was not the end of the Babylonian captivity. See, the fall of Babylon is the fall of the empire. The people were still very much within Babylon, hence the term Babylonian captivity. Babylonian captivity does not refer to the empire of Babylon holding the people captive. It refers specifically to the location that they were taken and held. And that period is 70 years. So, however, the writer of 2 Chronicles is going to close his work with the events that set into motion the rebuilding of the temple on the book of Ezra and the rebuilding of the city in Nehemiah. So, look at verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Saints, this is where Second Chronicles concludes. Now we want you to take a look at where we're at in Ezra, Nehemiah, beginning in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah does not claim an author. It doesn't have a line like I, the Apostle Paul, along with Silas, have written these things. They're titled the way that they are because of the heroic efforts of the men working within the books. Both books are sections, or rather both books are sections of a singular book, contain first-person accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it is obvious by the history covered and the material within the books that they are an inspired historical compilation. You could think of them a little bit like Luke's gospel in the book of Acts. Was Luke there for everything that Luke wrote about? No, no he carefully investigated it. But when you're reading Acts, you start to notice that his pronouns include him. Then we did this, or I said that. Ezra and Nehemiah is very much like that. It's a careful investigation that provides you with inspired, historical, and a first-person accounting of what happened. Now, whoever wrote Ezra, Nehemiah, and both Jewish as well as Christian traditions ascribe it to Ezra, was obviously continuing the narrative of Second Chronicles to provide an inspired history of God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises to the Jewish people. 
That is why 2 Chronicles ends with the proclamation of Cyrus and Ezra picks up with the proclamation of Cyrus. By the way, it is commonly believed that Ezra wrote 2 Chronicles as well. Hey, engage with that for just a second. Like Chronicles may skip over some of the negative judgments because it's not the point of Chronicles. If Ezra is writing 1st and 2nd Chronicles or just 2nd Chronicles and then it's the compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah, he mentions Jeremiah, he mentions things that are in Daniel, but he just picks right back up with the faithful promises of God. That's the point of the book. Now the first part of Ezra and Nehemiah is going to begin by explaining the 23 years of history that completes the desolation of the temple and arrives at a rebuilt temple. How many of you realize that Ezra doesn't show up in the book of Ezra for 23 years? Yeah, Yeah, that's an important thing to grasp. Now at this point, we want you to have some sense of the events that we are going to encounter in this amazing work. You should know that the dates are a matter of serious debate, but what we are using as illustrations are generally accepted with a plus or minus of a few years. Now, you're going to want to look at this slide. Yeah, you're going to want your cameras out. This is a slide that is going to be foundational and pivotal for our studies throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. You guys probably remember that there were three sieges on Jerusalem from our Jeremiah studies. Is that true? Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So as you engage with this slide... Notice the three rectangular boxes. Notice what they're titled there. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. They represent three waves of returning Jewish people to the land of promise that are detailed in the work we will be covering. Now, draw your attention to the left side of the screen where there are two arrows. There's one big one and one red one. See that over there? Yes. The 70 years of prophesied desolation began in the third siege and continued for 23 years after the Persians rose to power. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. and it was rebuilt and completed in 516 B.C. under the administration of Zerubbabel. The slide says 515, but that is immaterial. It was actually 516, and we're going to come out there and tell you right now. 516 is the right date. It's interesting to note the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were at work during this period. Haggai focused his efforts on regaining the initial enthusiasm to complete the work that had already begun on the temple, but it had stalled. Zechariah focused on the assurance that the work would be completed even though it had stalled. The Lord used these prophets to ensure that the work on the temple was completed exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed, just as Jeremiah and Chronicles have said. Now, before Peyton picks up in this next section and explains it, I did something really dirty to you, and I caught the pastors when I did it. So we're an equal opportunity offender in here. I asked you how many of you realize that Ezra doesn't show up for 23 years in the book of Ezra. And some of you looked and moved around and a couple of the pastors boldly raised their hands. It was an awful lot longer than 23 years. You're wrong. It's so easy to agree to something in church that you don't 
vaguely begin to understand. So pay careful attention to what Peyton is about to say, and the slide will help you. So next you may notice that there is a red circle with Esther in the middle of it. Still there. The temple was completed in 516 BC, and the events of Esther took place in between the work of Zerubbabel and the arrival of Ezra in Jerusalem. That means that during our study on Esther, the temple has already been rebuilt. Come on now. That's good. It gets better. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah begins with the Persian decree in 539 or 538 and then moves through a 23-year period in, uh, in which the temple was rebuilt. It would be easy to miss that Ezra himself does not arrive in Jerusalem for almost 80 years. How long? 80. Y'all jumped up 23 pretty quickly. It's 80 years before Ezra shows up in his own work. So almost 80 years after the decree went out and 60 years after the temple was completed. So Ezra showed up personally in Jerusalem in the 450s BC. So keep that in mind. Ezra showed up personally in Jerusalem in 450 and worked to address the soul of the nation. The altar and the temple, which could be thought of as the heart of the nation, were already in, in place. One of the things that you will notice in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and altar, do not mean that you don't have significant reform that must continually occur within your soul. Oh, come on now. You should be amening that. How many of you got a new altar in your heart? How many of you got a new beginning, but your soul is nowhere near fully on board with the Lord? Some of you on the front row should know exactly what I'm talking about. Much, much like the Torah that addressed your heart, Zerubbabel took care to establish God's temple and altar in the heart of Israel. But Ezra, like the Nevi'im, addressed the soul of the nation and warned them about idolatry still present within their renewed nation. So the work of Zerubbabel established the heart of the nation. But the work of Ezra addressed the soul of the nation. Is that beginning to ring clear to you? Yes. Almost like the book is arranged like the Hebrew Bible itself. So next, you should notice the rectangular box on the right of the screen titled Nehemiah. The focus of Nehemiah's ministry was establishing the security and the strength of the nation based on faithfulness to Adonai in their given historical setting. This is easily related to the purpose of the Ketuvim in general. So Zerubbabel and Joshua established the temple and the altar, which are the heart of Israel. Then Ezra addressed Torah observance within the soul of the nation by confronting practices that don't reflect the spirit of the word of God. And finally, Nehemiah comes to build the wall and the city while encouraging faithfulness to the word in the historical setting that the people were living in. There were three waves of return to Israel. There were also a threefold endorsement of the Tanakh in its threefold function. Do you, do you see on the screen the three waves? 
Three waves that went into captivity, three waves that came out of captivity. These kind of patterns are not by mistake in the Bible. In fact, the law has a habit of foreseeing all that would occur in advance. It really should remind you of Deuteronomy 6.5. I'm going to read it to you out of the NASB. You shall, somebody say, I shall. I shall. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Parents of young people, that ought to really encourage you. It might not be up to them as much as they think it is up to them. God said, you shall. Not you might. Not you must. You shall. This has always been more of a prophecy than a requirement in the word of God. The Lord is going to make sure that his nation loves him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. And if their heart, soul, and strength went into captivity, he is a master at bringing their heart, soul, and strength out of captivity. I love the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. After noting that there were three distinct categories of desolation in the book of Jeremiah, you could refer to them as the nation's servitude, the nation's desolation, and the nation's temple being destroyed. Many have understood the prophecy of 70 years to mean that each of these things started at a different time, but also lasted exactly 70 years. Three different periods of 70 years. Different starting dates and different ending dates of 70 years. This is a really compelling thought, and it's probably true. We've shown you that there are exactly three sieges that occurred, and that there are exactly three waves of return that occurred. Additionally, we've shown you that the destruction of the temple and its rebuilding were exactly 70 years apart. But it's beyond the scope of our meeting and our studies today to illustrate the exact correlation between all three periods and the likelihood of each distinct period being exactly 70 years. We do think it's probably true. The complication is determining exactly when they start. We might know when they end, but exactly when they start is difficult to determine and a matter of debate. Perhaps the decades of your own personal study that are going to follow this will help us in that endeavor. For now, it's enough to know that the temple was destroyed in 586 and the temple was rebuilt in 516. Exactly 70 years as both Jeremiah and Chronicles said that it would be. Let's move on to another illustration by the New Bible Commentary. You guys still breathing? Yeah. All right. Let's work down the left side of the slide first. You will notice that around 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the Edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple. Now, an earlier slide placed the return in 535. That is because the, de the decree was issued in 539 or 8. And it took them a while to get there. It was 900 miles. We are intentionally avoiding those kind of unnecessary distractions and needless debates. They began working on the temple in 538. But the work stalled for about 17 to 18 years. Building contractors are the same in every nation. <laughs> Couldn't get a draw check. That is when Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people to action again. In about 520... The work was underway again. 
Now, as you're engaging with that history, in your own life, have you ever experienced rapid advancement as God was establishing something in your heart only to have it stall dramatically? Because God has pity on you and compassion upon you, he sends his prophets to stir you up again. Sometimes the best stirring you can get is a thrashing. Because we do not want to sit in apathy. The books of Haggai and Zechariah are all about thrashing the nation again so that they will meet God's timeline. And you can see that the temple was completed on the left side of the slide in 516 B.C. Again, this is 70. How many? 70. 70 years after it was destroyed by Babylon in the third siege of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. As you slide down the scale through the decades, you will come to Ezra in the 450s when his work was underway. Lastly, you come to Nehemiah in the 440s. We will cover the Persian rulers as we arrive at them in our text throughout our studies together. So before we move on from this slide here, we've actually summarized on the right side of the screen the points that we want to make sure that you take away from this. The third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple occurred in 586 B.C. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the edict of Cyrus in either 539 or 538 B.C. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years after its destruction. Zerubbabel Haggai and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra will arrive in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C. to reform the people and teach them the Torah. Lastly, Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall and the city. So while y'all are looking at that, and I I hope you appreciate the kind of work that goes into that. The book begins with Cyrus' decree in 539. But it's 80 years before Ezra shows up and 90 years before Nehemiah shows up. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they show up during the 23-year period where the temple has been started but not completed because that's what prophets do. They get the work of God back on track in someone's life. They warn the soul about the consequence of your current apathetic spiritual condition. And we're happy to have them because the good news is, after their work, do you know what happened? It was completed on exactly the year date that it's supposed to have been completed. Now one way to look at that is, well, then God put up with my apathy. The other way to look at it is, Even in my sinful state, God loved me enough to make sure his sovereign will came about. He just used a prophet to beat me up until it did. Oh, God, that we would have prophets among us. Guys, when you you start to really, truly appreciate these dates, their significance, and their overall span, you realize that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about a hundred years. A hundred. A big fat century. A hundred years. And is solely dedicated to the establishment of the heart, the soul, and the strength of the nation of Israel. 
The Lord is demonstrating his help through Ezra and his comfort through Nehemiah, just as the definitions of their names actually suggest. The point of the book is to illustrate Adonai's faithfulness to his promises given to his people. This is especially pertinent since we have already seen Adonai's commitment to their discipline. Aren't you glad that he's as committed to the final outcome as he is to the discipline of any one act? That's a good rule for discipline in a church. That you be as committed to the restoration that you're hoping for as you are to presently address the situation that needs discipline. In fact, it's the aim of all discipline. Now, what you also must not do is be so committed to the final outcome that you don't do what it takes to get there. Doesn't that make sense? Ezra and Nehemiah, when you consider them with Chronicles and Jeremiah and Daniel, are a mixture of God's discipline followed by the faithfulness of his promises to accomplish what he said. It's actually quite a beautiful century that we're going to talk about in in this amazing work. So since we've mentioned what the names mean twice, let's give you a slide with sources that define Ezra and Nehemiah's names. Check out the slide. So Ezra means help. This is from New Ungers. If you want to write down that source, it's an incredible uh, commentary to look up words in. Nehemiah, and I'll call on our Hebrew scholar how to say that in Hebrew. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Jehovah comforts. Jehovah has consoled. The comfort of God, i.e. the aid of the Lord. This comes from two roots, the first one being to comfort, and the second, Jehovah. So when you're engaging with that, do you think their mamas knew in advance? When they were circumcised on the eighth day, did their parents understand all they would accomplish? Or did God uniquely design these men and name them appropriately so that they were the help and comfort of Israel at a time he determined to do that. The more you study these kind of things, the bigger your appreciation for the greatness of our God is. I want to assure you that you were not designed wrongly. You may have applied your design wrongly, but you were designed correctly. And God is able to stir you and move you to re-engage with his design for your life. What you have to do is not be so committed to needing discipline that you receive only discipline. This book is about God's faithfulness to his long-term promise to form Israel into all that he said that they would be. Amen. Moments like this really reinforce the need for studying the Bible holistically. Yeah. In the same way that it's not possible to experience real salvation without the crushing weight of your sin, these books mean very little if you've not gone through the agony of Jeremiah to get to this point. Yeah. Now, in our crossing of studies, at this point we were very tempted to show you similarities (laughs) between Aramaic sections of Ezra and the book of Daniel, which we've already been through together. There are 67 of 280 total verses written in Aramaic And they are all relate to official correspondence from the Persian monarchy to the people. However, when we considered doing this, we realized that it would essentially be done just to tell you that we were right when we taught the book of Daniel and said that Aramaic was the lingua franca of this period. So let's face it, 
We know you believed us in the beginning, right? Yes. 67 of 280 verses in this are in Aramaic. So we're going to move on from this point to some highlights about the character of Ezra the man himself. Would you all like to do that? Yes. Okay. So you're going to want to turn to the seventh chapter of Ezra. You all right, Jen? You look like you're in pain on the front row. You all right? All right, we're going to move to the seventh chapter of Ezra. She's been taking care of puppies. That woman's tired. And the first verse. Are you all there? After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of the fat tub, no, Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mareoth, the son of Zerahiah, and the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief or high priest. Now, I know genealogies are funny, but they're never insignificant in your Bible. Remember, this book is the story. The Bible is a story that is a familial story. So when genealogies are mentioned, there is a reason for that. One of the things that you could take note of in Ezra's genealogy is that he is a direct descendant of Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. This means that he's a part of a perpetual priesthood that was promised to the line of Phinehas because he decided to spear sin rather than sympathize with it. He distinguished himself in the book of Numbers in the 25th chapter. And so God said that he would never fail to have a descendant in the priesthood. And Ezra is a fulfillment of that. This was, of course, also the basis for choosing the Levitical priesthood in the first place. The events of Exodus 32 outlined the Levites rallying to Moses even though it meant killing their own relatives. That was the basis for the priesthood in the Bible. Then Phinehas stands up against his own countrymen while they're all sitting apathetic, and that's the basis for a perpetual priesthood. Now, when you consider those things, The blessing of Deuteronomy 33.8 on the line of Levi is that he would have no regard for his father or mother but would watch and guard God's word. Can I tell you it's true also of your children? It's true also of your cousins? It's true also of your neighbors? If you will hold the word of God in high esteem in your daily practice, then there will be Ezra's that rise from your line and they will turn the heart and the spirit and the soul and the flesh of your family line around. We won't cover the negative. The other thing is to note is that Ezra is the son of Sariah, who was the grandson of, say this one with me, Hilkiah. Hilkiah. Hilkiah was the high priest in the reign of Josiah. That was around the birth of Jeremiah. This means that Ezra is the great-grandson of the man that found the book of the law in 2 Kings 22 and verse 8. Now let me tell you why we're doing that. This builds a powerful introduction to the pedigree and the expected character of Ezra in this book. 
Before you know who Ezra is, you know who he came from. Listen to me, young people. When people look at your parents, they should expect certain behavior from you. Because they are your pedigree. And you shame your own parents when you don't live up to your pedigree. Of course, Ezra did. And he even exceeded it. The beautiful thing is his pedigree and his reputation matched. That is amazing. And you learn it from his genealogy before you find out about his life. Wait, this gets even better. Let's read verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now the phrase, this Ezra, is to delineate Ezra from anyone else by that name, because there's a few. Now look at the two descriptors given about him. He is well-versed in the law of Moses. Come on, well-versed is the same phrase as in Psalm 45, 1, where it says, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Well-versed, skillful, same phrase. It occurs again in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine, where it says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Obviously, the point is that Ezra demonstrated serious skill in the law of Moses. Now, the second descriptor is why Ezra was perceived this way. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Man, could there be any more desirable traits for the believer than to be skillful in the law and have Adonai's hand upon you? Do you want anything more than that? Now, it just seems... That the man who rediscovered the law, Hilkiah, had this discovery magnified over the next three generations until a descendant was said to be skillful in the law and have God's hand upon him. How many of you are second generation Christians? Then the goal would be that you take what was given to you when your parents found the law and you magnify it. If you're shooting for just what your parents did, you're aiming lower than God is. What would it be to be a third generation? Ezra is an example of what we call the exponent. His grandfather found the law, but he was skillful in the law. So not only does he become very skilled in the law that his father's found, It's even better when you realize that this is how God perpetuates a priesthood from and like Phinehas. We're going to keep learning about Ezra. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. It's really important for you crazy charismatics here in the room. To really grab a hold of the fact that Ezra did not fall out of a spiritual safety deposit box that contained extraordinary gifts apart from the application of his extraordinary devotion. Pastor, will you pray for me to know the word of God like you do? Nope. 
<laughs> it doesn't work that way. The way that Ezra became Ezra was extraordinary devotion. I love you, but it is not a spiritually imparted gift to study. Yeah. To study is how you get spiritually imparted gifts, but it is not a gift in and of itself. Come on now. It's said of Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd that C.T. Studd was struggling to learn Mandarin. And he prayed that God would just give him the language. And Hudson Taylor took him to task and said, I am praying that God will not give you the language. Because it's your job to learn it. Amen. Extraordinary devotion is the pathway to get to the character and to be a man like Ezra was. He was both skillful and the hand of the Lord was upon him because it says he devoted himself to study. In fact, Ezra excelled in three specific areas in this passage. The study of the law was the first one. The Hebrew actually says Ezra had set his heart or prepared his heart to derash, to seek, to inquire the Torah of Yahweh. This will make any man, any man who wants it, skillful in the law of God. The second one, observance to the law. Ezra was not content to study alone or to seek alone. He was fully committed in obedience to the things that he learned applying what he was learning. This will ensure that Adonai's hand is on any man that does this. Engage with the difference between those two things. It's said in the Newer Testament that they are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. There is a difference between the study of the, the law and the observance of the law. I have personally observed that many Christian youth study the law, but they do not observe the law. It requires both working in conjunction with one another. Studying the law only makes you more guilty for what you know but do not do. Observing the law will actually absolve you of things that you did not know. So only after extraordinary devotion to the study of the law and to the observance to the law do you get the third, teaching the application of the law. The things that were invested in Ezra were in turn invested into Israel as a nation. Judaism tends to think of Ezra actually as a kind of a first rabbi. Check out this next slide with us. All right, so this slide reads, The importance of Ezra for the creation and formation of what came to be known as rabbinic Judaism cannot be overestimated. According to the Bible, Ezra was the one who brought the Torah to the returning exiles, read and interpreted it publicly, and oversaw the people's solemn recommitment to its teaching. Thus, Ezra is like a second Moses. What? A second what? Moses. The rabbis imply this by stating, Ezra was sufficiently worthy that the Torah could have been given through him if Moses had not preceded him. Ezra is both an authoritative scribe and priest, as well as a kind of proto-rabbi, who also has the authority of a prophet. This guy's incredible. His legal innovations are not seen as much, but are depicted as proper interpretation of uh, of eternally binding 
Mosaic Law. Uh, this principle is at the heart of rabbinic interpretation, and his authenticity is never called into question within rabbinic Judaism. As you engage with what's in yellow on the screen, understand something. Ezra did not prophesy, thus saith the Lord. But Ezra's interpretation was treated with the level of reverence that prophecy Amen. had. Yes. It is a great thing in the charismatic community to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, especially if you're right. <laughs> of course, if you interpret the word correctly, it's better than saying, thus saith the Lord, because we know that you are right. Thanks. We're giving you an idea of how Ezra has been viewed for thousands of years as a result of the work that we're going to cover together. Within Judaism, the three aspects of Ezra's life, study, observance, and teaching, have become the ideal prototype for a rabbi. He forms the character of what they want to grow up into. And just to be clear, the NIV translates that as observance. Many of you are ESV fans. It's significantly better. It says to study the law and to do it. <laughs> just to put it in simple terms, to study and do the word and teach others to do the same is the ideal for a rabbi or a teacher. It has also served as an example for generations of Christian preachers. The, many of the things that we do on our modern day and level stem from this time frame and you just haven't realized it. In our day though, it is worth deeply contemplating whether any man should attempt to teach the word of God without gaining at least some level of aptitude in the first two areas, to study and observe the word or to study and do the word. Remember that the Lord's own brother said this in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, how many things would be cured in life if the men that were teaching the word did more than study it? They were actually doing it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another descriptor of Ezra. Is that all right? Yes. Ezra 7 and verse 11. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher. A man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Did you notice that Ezra is called both a priest and a teacher and in the same sentence? These are terms that usually appear singularly when describing a person. The Bible says something like, so-and-so was a priest, or so-and-so was a teacher. This construction is unique in the Hebrew Bible, in that Ezra is called both a priest and a teacher three times in the Bible and always within the same sentence. As far as we're able to see, Ezra is the only man in the Bible that we could find who is described with both of these Hebrew words in the same sentence. You can look it up in Nehemiah 8-9 where it says teacher and scribe, or rather priest and scribe, but the word scribe there is the same Hebrew word, or in Nehemiah 12-26. Others are called priest or teacher, but Ezra is described as a priest and teacher. We could go on and on with the excellent character of Ezra 
In fact, we will put at least one more in this chain of reference at the end that is our favorite. Yes. However, we first want to illustrate how the pagan contemporaries view Ezra. This is because you would expect believers to revere Ezra. But to have pagan governmental officials speak so highly of him is a whole other class of compliment. Take a look at Ezra 7, 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest. I, must, I, I cannot wait to see our next White House uh, a memorandum. <laughs> Joseph Biden, president of presidents. It's a very humble thing to do. You're writing a letter, and you write king of kings. But what he says about Ezra is amazing. Yeah. Artaxerxes, king of kings. Yeah. To Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Wow. Greetings. Wow. You see Artaxerxes himself called Ezra a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Wow. It is truly a remarkable thing to have the ruler of the known world declare that Ezra is a priest and teacher. It is even more remarkable that he refers to the God of Israel as the God of heaven. Yep. It seems that Ezra was notable even in the eyes of the pagan monarch. This certainly places him in the sphere of Joseph and Daniel. And an argument could be made that this specific wording about Ezra is even more impressive than the former two men. Wow. <laughs> Our next one comes from Ezra 7, verse 24. You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes. Amen! <laughs> Tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. Guys, do you realize that Ezra made such an impression on the Persian monarch that he achieved tax exemption for those working in ministry? That reaches us even today. Even the gatekeepers. That tax exemption has been observed by most governments in the world right up to our present time. And this was the origination point for it. It's actually taken the Democratic Party about 2,500 years to de-evolve into a group that actually questions the right of ministers to be exempt from taxation. Most of them want to take that right away after 2,500 years. However, our larger point is that Ezra so impressed the Persians that he achieved tax exemption for the work of God. So let's keep going in Ezra 7, picking up in verse 25. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So Ezra was given the right to appoint governmental officials that held the power of life and death. This is remarkable when you think about it because Jews living under Roman rule didn't have this right. This genuinely points to the sovereignty of God over all governmental systems as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 say. Ezra must have been quite an impressive man for a Persian monarch 
to invest the power to appoint officials and enforce justice under the penalty of capital punishment. What made Ezra so impressive? The Persian king tells you, and you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess. You should not think of Ezra being born as particularly endowed with gifts. It would be better to think of a man born under occupation that distinguished himself by the study of Torah, the observance of Torah, and the teaching of Torah. Saints, we do need to keep moving, but just to highlight what Peyton yeah, has shared with you. Phenomenal. You yeah. should remember in our Daniel studies, some of the research into Persian culture, the Persian Empire, it is not normal for any empire to allow a foreigner to have the right to put anyone to death. Particularly in Persian society, you had to be a Persian to hold any governmental office, and some Medes were allowed in, in the Medo-Persian Empire. But no foreigner of any kind would have judicial authority in an area. This is nothing short of a supernatural work in a man of God's life where a pagan could see the hand of God on a man. It would actually be less miraculous if we got a call from the Oval Office right now that said, by the power of the President of the United States, with the support of the Supreme Court before it's packed, and the entire legislative body, we hereby appoint JJ to be able to appoint officials as he seems fit and to put people to death if they violate the tenets of the scripture. That would be less miraculous because JJ is an American. This is being done for a foreigner. Ezra 7.14 is where we're going next. You were sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. The saints you may remember from our study in Esther together, the Persian kings kept wise and discerning men, men who understood the times around them, men that were their counsel in a special class that had access to the king. In this case, this Persian monarch apparently had seven of these advisors seven of these special men. And although it was not necessary, the king felt the need to specifically include that all seven of his advisors were in unity about their opinion of Ezra as a man. And he wrote it for the world to see. Come on, isn't that special? But we saved our favorite one for last. After going through the governmental relationships and how they saw Ezra, which is... I mean, you expect believers to think highly of a believer. These are unbelievers that think highly of him. We come to our favorite. So, Ezra 8, 21. There by the Ahava Canal, which by the way means love, so we leave that word untranslated. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed to fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him, for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. Notice something. Just like Mordecai, when Ezra feels a hint of danger, his natural instinct was to lean on humility and fasting rather than planning and manipulation. The verse goes on to show that Ezra puts his faith into practical application, specifically by forsaking security to place his trust in that which is 
sacred. Come on, Amen. now. That's a good word. Pick up in verse 22. Listen, listen to Ezra here. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Come on, church. The entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah places an emphasis on the sacred coming before and prioritized above security. Ezra cared more about God's reputation than his own safety, and he was even ashamed to ask for safety. The reason he's ashamed to ask is not because the king won't give it to him. Have you gotten the impression that the king would give him almost anything that he asked for? A few mounted horses are no big deal. He was concerned about God's reputation. And so he did not ask a man to protect him when he had already declared that God was sacred enough to die for. Wow, Christian, we could learn so much from that. He He cared about God's sacred name, God's sacred reputation than his own safety. Man, that's important, church. Now, the order of the three waves of returning Jews was the first wave to establish the sacred temple, the second wave to establish the sacred nature of Torah obedience, our Torah obedience. You're going to want to write these down. The third wave to establish walls and our city for the security of the generations. Notice that the first wave precedes the third wave. The sacred comes before security. Who in their right mind focuses on building an altar and a temple without having a city and walls? Well, we're not in our right mind. That's right. We're in God's mind. And the altar and the temple, the sacred, come before your security. It's the only way that God will build. Now, any man... As we will see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, any man that values the sacred above his own security will be answered from heaven. This is a pattern that we will endeavor to understand in the weeks to come. Because when you seek security before that which is sacred, you cannot obtain that which is sacred. If you seek the sacred, then God's plan will eventually lead you into security. Guys, we would be remiss if we failed to include three other features of Ezra, Nehemiah, before we got into the chapter. However, we are an hour and seven minutes in to our time together, and we haven't even touched chapter one yet. We run the risk of abusing our time allotment. So we've elected to display these three items in slides for you. Before we display that first slide, We have all just come out of the book of Esther. You may remember that the Hashem does not occur plainly in the text of Esther, but does appear if you know how to look. Ezra Nehemiah is much more straightforward than that. Yeah, real blunt. The name appears twice in the very first verse of this work. Look at this first slide. So God is very central to the account of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first reference to God in the book of Ezra 
is the personal name of God that was given to the Israelites before the Exodus. You can see that in Exodus 3.14. This name occurs 37 times in Ezra and 17 times in Nehemiah. It is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, or by the short form, Tetragram or Tetragram. This means that the name is made up of four letters in its original Hebrew form of yod Hey vav Hey, or Y-H-W-H. This is from United Bible Societies. So, so our first go ahead. of three remaining themes is to cover that there is nothing. Somebody say nothing. Nothing. Nothing subtle about the emphasis on the divine name in Ezra and Nehemiah. It is loud. It is loud. From the very beginning, the first verse, twice it's used. This book is about Yahweh helping and comforting his people in order to fulfill his gracious and unbreakable promise. Do y'all want to move to the second thing? Yeah. Yeah. Once again, having just come from Esther, where the entire book takes place in Susa, in Persia, it is quite striking how central Jerusalem and the temple are to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not in captivity anymore. We are specifically in Judah and Jerusalem around the temple. Now remember, the temple in Jerusalem is the, the one place on earth where God invested his name and his reputation. Second Chronicles 17, 16 says this, I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So we put together on a slide for you some of the references that you might want to take note of as you engage this book. They all regard Jerusalem and the temple, and we want you to see the way that they're interchanged. The city of Jerusalem is a key focal point in these books because the city represents the land from which the Jews were taken into exile in Babylonia and to which they now return. The city and its location are sometimes used synonymously as Ezra 2.1, where we find Jerusalem and Judah, and in Ezra 4.6, where they are cited in the reverse order, Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was important because of its political significance as a capital city. But it was most important to the Jews because it was in Jerusalem that the temple was located. The building is referred to by several different expressions. These are all expressions for the temple. A house at Jerusalem, Ezra 1-2. The house of God, which is in Jerusalem, Ezra 1-4. The house of God which is in Jerusalem, Ezra 1.5. The house of the Lord, the God of Israel, Ezra 1.3. The temple, which is in Jerusalem, Ezra 5.15. And the temple of the Lord, Ezra 3.6. These twin themes of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and of rebuilding the temple are central to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is accordingly also frequent reference to work. Nehemiah 2.16, which of course refers to the work of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple, to the work of rebuilding in Ezra 5.11, and to the finishing of the work, Ezra 4.12. The goal of completing the task is kept in focus as an important theme in the narrative. So while you're looking at that slide, 
I want you to notice that this commentator rightly points out the centrality of Jerusalem and the temple to Ezra and Nehemiah. But he wrongly asserts as if it were merely important to the Jews. That's not correct. I mean, it is true that it's important to the Jews, but the larger issue is it's important to God. It is, it is a little bit sad for us to even have to say that. But in our time of over-spiritualization of the temple, where you forget that it is an actual physical location on the earth and think it just, just and only refers to people, and in a time when even the term Israel is experiencing redefinition as an entity, we felt the need to point out what was blatantly obvious to Ezra. The temple was a real place and a specific spot on the earth. He wrote the Prayer of Solomon from 2 Chronicles 7, and he wrote Ezra, and he says again and again and again, God's house in Jerusalem, the temple. And that's what this book shows us God is being faithful to, Amen. at least one of the many things. So then firstly, what we wanted to show you is that the name of God is central to Ezra and Nehemiah. Y'all get that? Yeah, yeah. Then secondly, we wanted to show you that the temple and the city of Jerusalem are central to Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, let's look at our third and final slide. Come on, John, you're going to love this one. Yeah, he does. Everybody say joy. Joy. Another theme is the joy that is associated with events that have great significance, especially for the religious life of the Jewish community. The laying of the temple foundation is marked by joy, joy, as are the dedication of the temple, the celebration of the Passover, the public reading of the law was marked by joy, joy and the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. You see, every aspect of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is marked by joy, joy because Yahweh is seen as helping and comforting his people. The book displays the immutable promises of God to form the heart, soul, and strength of the nation into his image. Amen. The beginning of this process is valuing the sacred before seeking security, and then God builds it as you value the sacred. So with that being said, after talking about joy and laying the foundations, do we have a man that wants to stand up and pray again? Oh, that was weak. <laughs> Somebody pray! chapter 1. She's building her courage for Ezra chapter 2 next week. <laughs> in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm 
and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. The family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithrath, the treasurer who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all of these along with the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Come on. Amen. After several weeks, it is so refreshing to read a chapter of God's Word together tonight on a Tuesday night. Amen. Yes. And foundationally speaking, you can now see, now that we've read Ezra chapter 1 together, you can see how 2 Chronicles 36 flows straight into Ezra chapter 1 as one contiguous story. Linton, let's start together with verse 1. In the first year of King of Cyrus, King of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, King of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. So since we've already made much of the obvious connection between Second Chronicles, closing with this decree, and Ezra opening with this decree, we are now going to refresh your memory on the events that led up to the decree. We're doing this because Ezra picks up in the first year of Cyrus as the emperor of the world. This is not his first year as a ruler, though. It's important to note that. It is his first year ruling over the former Babylonian Empire. So during our teachings on Daniel 5, we covered some of this information. You guys will remember the setting is during the reign of the Babylonian king Belshazzar. This incredibly, even comically, ironic thing is that Isaiah prophesied this in specific detail. We have a verse from Daniel 5 and verse 6 in the KJV, and this is how it looks. All right. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed. Yikes. And his knees smote one against another. <laughs> so Daniel records what some might imagine is incontinence. Oh. 
Isaiah prophesied in the 700s BC that a king named Cyrus would do exactly this to the Babylonians. We can find that in Isaiah 45. Come on, we have a slide for you. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, Cyrus. whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaf gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou hast not known me. As Isaiah prophesied the events of Cyrus' rise and his conquering of Babylon 150 years before Cyrus was born. And Isaiah's prophecy was brought to fulfillment in Daniel 5, even the incontinence of Belshazzar. You should note that Adonai calls Israel his elect and his servant. Furthermore, Adonai raises up Cyrus, even though he says of Cyrus, Thou hast not known me. Thanks, Isaiah already understands through this prophecy that Israel would need Cyrus to come crush Babylon, names the man who would do it. Apparently, the sovereignty of Adonai is without limit. Without limit especially when it comes to the utilization of the heads of nation as they relate to his people. So back to the setting of Daniel 5, where you see a description of what is happening inside of that uh, Playboy's palace. Hmm. But at the same time, something else is happening right outside the city walls of Babylon. So this slide is called Belshazzar's Feast and Fall. Belshazzar hosted an extravagant feast to boost the morale as Babylon was surrounded by a Persian army under the leadership of Ugbaru, who of course worked for Cyrus. Belshazzar had a false sense of security. Babylon had massively fortified walls and food provisions that could last for many years. He thus displayed a festive mood before his nobles to demonstrate confidence in the security of his kingdom. The Medo-Persian army diverted the flow of the Babylonian river and captured the city without any major battles. See, in the very same moment that Belshazzar's britches are in danger... So is his entire kingdom. You should also remember that Belshazzar had just taken the articles seized from the temple during Nebuchadnezzar's time and was using them for his personal dinner party entertainment. At the same moment that that's happening, the Persians are amassed right outside and are busy diverting the water of a canal system so that they can take Babylon and do it without a fight. I want to show you a map just to help you understand quickly. You see that the rectangle there is three quarters surrounded by a river and a moat system outlined in blue. The Persians were attempting to negotiate this outer wall, moat, and inner wall system. 
Nebuchadnezzar had known that this was a vulnerability. And so look at what history records. On the canals in the city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar also refurbished the main canal, the Libil Hagala, which provided fresh water and drainage for Babylon. It had, blocked, it had been blocked with dust and silt after Sennacherib had gotten to it. Ever the military strategist, he came up with the idea of installing iron grills to prevent soldiers or spies from using this canal or others as a discreet entry into the city. What? Raising this canal then required him to further raise Procession Street because the one flowed under the other. Now, while Nebuchadnezzar had the foresight to protect his kingdom, Belshazzar did not. The canals were drained while the Playboy Prince entertained his guests and the bars were cut while he was at the party. Now, we read Isaiah 45 to you earlier, and we mentioned that Isaiah had prophesied 150 years earlier that he would loose the loins of kings. But that's not the only thing that was prophesied in that passage. Take a look at our slide again. So this is the same slide as, early, as earlier in the same passage, but with slightly different emphasis. So the first three verses here say, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Actually happened. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. It was also prophesied that the iron bars that protected Babylon from invading peoples were going to be cut. So, in synopsis, loins were loosed and iron bars were being cut. And those things were happening simultaneously. Both of them being having been prophesied 150 years prior to the night that they occurred. So the Persians entered the city on the night of the dinner party. Look at this next slide titled The Conquest of Babylon from Herodotus. On October 12, 539 BC, Cyrus General captured uh, Cyrus General captured Babylon without a battle. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which thus rendered the flood defenses useless and enabled the invaders to march through the riverbed to enter by night. Now, the specificity of Isaiah is incredible. We want you to look at the wording of Isaiah 44, picking up in verse 27. That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That said of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus said the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Saints, you should be noticing the specificity of the promise 
but how it is always connected to the welfare of his people, Israel, what he wants to accomplish. Now, Josephus, we don't want to divert far because we're right on target for our teaching tonight, but I, I do want you to know this. When you're considering Bible prophecy, look how specific these things are. More than that, Babylon was not a world power to even take Israel captive when Isaiah is prophesying. You know who else is not a world power to come and do this? The Persians. Cyrus is not even born when these things are being discussed. That's pretty incredible when it comes down to it. Josephus recorded something astonishing regarding Cyrus' entrance into Babylon. The next slide should be a reminder. This is Josephus. When Cyrus made his grand entrance into Babylon, Daniel presented him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, which contained a personal letter addressing him by name, which you have been reading. Wow. So put yourself in the shoes of Cyrus for a minute. That's not something we usually do. But in Esther, you developed an affinity for Persian kings. Cyrus was presented with a prophecy from Isaiah that was 150 years old at the time that he's seeing it. The prophecy reads like a personal letter that details his battle strategy in advance. Kings talk about these battle strategies privately. And Isaiah wrote this down before Cyrus was born. It also predicted the response of Belshazzar to soil himself. That that had to to make a, a mark on the man's heart, like it did in Belshazzar's garments. But notice that the prophecy went on to mention the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. It even mentioned the treasures hidden in darkness that would be given to Cyrus. So as Ezra 1 picks up, what we're reading is a decree from Cyrus that is really a a kind of quotation of the prophecy of Isaiah. That's that's incredible. Cyrus knew that he was supposed to authorize the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and that he was supposed to return the temple treasures because he saw it in Isaiah and his name was addressed in it. Now, we realize reading the King James is somewhat humorous. And we did that on purpose because we like the phrase, loose the joints of his loins. But we want to read you a portion of this in the NIV so that there's some possibility that you will actually understand us. It's Isaiah 45, 1 through 5 in the NIV. Verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron, like the ones protecting the water entrance to Babylon, bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Now it seems that Cyrus was given the temple treasures specifically... Because it mentions treasures in Isaiah. Cyrus was given the temple treasures specifically so that he would know that it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who had summoned him to do this. He would know that it was the God of Israel when he received the treasures. 
The next verse makes it even clearer that these treasures are for Adonai's servant Jacob and his elect Israel. This is verse 4. For the sake of Jacob my servant, of Israel my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Can you imagine reading that? And it's about you? No, it's astounding. It's undoubtedly had an enormous impact on Cyrus, who did not find out that these things were written in advance until after he had already done them. So so engage with that for a minute. It'd be one thing if somebody showed up with this copy before you developed your battle strategy. Before Cyrus is finding out about it after he has already done all of these things. So, guys, we're going to make a a transition here. And at this point, what we're going to do is explore a facet of Adonai's working that is very often and frequently gone underemphasized in our ministry. We tend to point to the agency of free will and to illustrate the importance of one's personal choice. However, it is actually a very comforting thought to realize that Adonai is sovereign. Somebody say sovereign. Sovereign. Adonai is sovereign, and he has the ability to move your free will in any direction that he wants to or that he chooses. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into Exodus 35. We're going to read 20 through 22. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. So when we read this in the NIV, it appears as if the people were simply willing and their hearts moved them. But other translations emphasize the same event a little bit differently. And we have a slide to help you with this, entitled, All Who Are Willing. So beginning in the ESV, exact same passage. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. Nasby. Everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. Good old Amplified. And they came, each one whose heart stirred him up, and whose spirit made him willing. Oh. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit made him willing. In the CJB last. The reason that we showed you those translations is that if there was an innate willingness already existent in the people, it definitely came from Adonai stirring the hearts of the people, stirring their spirits so that they became willing. Our point here is not to elevate sovereignty above free will. We preach on a regular basis about the need to make right choices. Our point, though, is about the beauty of God at work in us. Both of the points of free will and God's sovereignty are equally true. 
He moved on them, and they chose to do what was right. The fact that this can be difficult to reconcile, how God can move men to do something and how they still have a choice, how those two truths interact with each other, should not diminish the fact that they are both still true. He moves and causes it to happen, and men have a choice. It's beautiful. Let's look at Haggai, the first chapter and 14th verse, because it's, it's within the time frame of the work that we're covering. And look how it says, verse 14, So the Lord, who? The Lord. Who? The Lord. Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So earlier, we saw that at the tabernacle of Moses, it was God who stirred the hearts and the spirits of the people to have willingness to obey. And here in Haggai, it was the Lord who stirred up the spirit of the people to obey and complete the work. These people's free will is definitely being affected by the spirit of of God yeah. in the sovereignty of God. That's How right. could you deny that? Yeah. It's a, it is useful to point out because it's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that the Lord is able to move your heart towards willingness. Yeah. It's not all about your choice. Whatever role your choice plays is true. The role of God's sovereignty is equally true, and those are not in contradiction to each other as philosophers would say they are. We should be careful in making statements on the limits of God's sovereignty. Before moving on, we want to acknowledge something else briefly. Proverbs 16.4 says this, The Lord works out everything for His own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. That's terrifying. Yeah. Perhaps your free will is very, very important. And maybe God won't violate it. We've said that many times ourselves. However, even if he uses, even if that's the case, he uses that for his own ends to make sure that his ultimate purpose comes about. To be completely transparent, we think it's appropriate to emphasize free will and the importance of your choices and all of the responsibilities you have when you're speaking to an overtly rebellious crowd or an infantile and immature people. However, for saints that are completely dedicated to obedience, saints that have already surrendered their free will to him, saints that are just not sure what to do next, perhaps we should do a much better job of elevating the sovereignty of God to a proper level of understanding. Adonai is supreme in all things, especially in the field of those that love him and are already submitted to him. That's why you've heard us say he is better at leading you than you are following him. But consider Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Come on. Just sit on that. It seems that you can have many ideas and yet count on the Lord's plan prevailing in the end. If we took the time to detail this, and we're not because there's 20 minutes left, some of you have extraordinary promises from God that you've worked against your entire Christian existence. And they're happening anyway. 
And it's marvelous to all the rest of us. We're going to celebrate the heck out of it. But you must not think that it came about because of your own merit. Come on, man. God moved to make it happen, although you were unfaithful. And when we start to think about it like that, you get excited about the greatness of your God, particularly when you're scared and unsure what to do. Yeah. Let's take another proverb. Proverbs 20, verse 24. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. How then can anyone understand his own way? <laughs> oh my. So from this proverb, it seems that you can decide to walk in any direction that you want. And yet, and yet, in the mystery of God, you find out that he was actually directing you. It's almost like you look back and your footsteps weren't seen because he was carrying you the entire time. Guys, this ought to be such a comfort to people like you who have already surrendered their free agency to Yahweh God. Come on, let's do another one. This is Proverbs 16, verse 9. It says, In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Yeah, that's true. So if we were Calvinists, our arguments would not be made from the book of Romans that Calvin clearly did not understand. They would be made from Proverbs. Yeah. But the fact remains that we are not Calvinists. No, we're not. And even lean towards Arminianism, but we are still comforted by the sovereignty of God. And think you should be as well. We often agonize over decisions, and rightfully so. But we also trust the Lord to steer us in his sovereignty, since he even does it for men like Cyrus. <laughs> Come on, church. Isn't that good news? Yes. Proverbs 16, 33. You should remember this one from Esther. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Oh, yeah. Saints, as Christian men and women of God, we simply refuse to believe the idea of luck, of random chance, or of happenstance. Verse 1, in Ezra, we can see that the Lord is at work in all things, especially for the good of those that love him. And he is bringing it about. Let's, let's quote a New Testament passage for you so that it just can't be missed. Philippians 2.12. It's kind of a perfect balance to these whole concepts. Therefore, my dear friends, are we still friends, church? Oh, yes. yes. As you have always obeyed. That's putting it kindly. Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like choices. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Sounds a lot like sovereignty. Yeah. While we've applied these things to you for your help, Ezra, and comfort, Nehemiah, wow. there is nothing more demonstrably true in the Bible than God's sovereignty over the affairs of his nation, Israel. Yeah. That's true. Let's jump back into Ezra, where Cyrus' decree is included verbatim, but is actually just a summary of what Isaiah prophesied 150 years earlier. <laughs> God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with them, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place 
where survivors may be may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Since we can see they're tired and and prepared to check out for no, the last few no, minutes. No, no, no. No. Justin, explain to him what just happened. Yeah, there's something striking here that I'm sure many of you have seen already. I doubt it. <laughs> Cyrus is not just fulfilling the word of God that was given to Isaiah. He's also doing it in a manner that resembles the Exodus. Yeah. Cyrus has commanded members of his kingdom to provide the surviving Jews with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings. That is an extraordinary turn of events, just like in Egypt. Yeah. Let's refresh the story of the Exodus quickly. Exodus 12, 33 through 36. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. Yeah, you will. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading trough wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Look, the first generation, Exodus, had to ask the Gentiles for articles, but in the decree of Cyrus, it was commanded by the emperor. That's impressive, church. Do you, do you get do you get that it's the same pattern as the Exodus, but it's better? Yeah. In the Exodus, they had to go and ask and persuade their neighbors. In this one, they don't even have to ask. The emperor of the world has commanded it. Yeah. <laughs> as the, uh, the Bible knowledge commentary put it so well, we could not help but make a slide and read it to you tonight. Cyrus Edict also instructed the returnees' neighbors in Persia to give them the equivalent of money, silver and gold material goods, livestock, and free will offerings. The free will offerings were for the temple, and the other gifts were for the people themselves. This is reminiscent of the exodus from Egypt, when God miraculously took the nation out of bondage and had the Egyptians aid them with gifts of silver, gold, and clothing. Now God was effecting a new exodus. Again, bringing his people who had been in bondage back into the land of promise, much as he had done under Moses and Joshua. The people had been in bondage to Babylon because of their failure to keep their covenantal obligations, which Moses had given them during the first exodus. This ends with this phrase. Once more, God was miraculously working in the life of the nation. So earlier you heard that Ezra is viewed a little bit like a second Moses. Now you're seeing, and that was from a Jewish commentary, now you're seeing some of the reasons why. They recognize the setting is the same, but even better. Let's pick up in verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart got it moved, uh -oh. prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Everyone's whose heart got it moved. One of the questions that came up in the book of Esther is now adequately answered. The question was, why were there Jews still in Persia if a decree had been issued for the return of the people uh, and the rebuilding of the temple and nation? Well, Esther 1.5 makes it clear 
that those who returned were moved by God to do so. The return happened in three ways, as we mentioned in the introduction. Some were moved to be pioneers in the effort. Some were moved to build on that work in the second wave. And some were called to water the seeds planted before them as they went in the third wave. This is profoundly deep, but it is, but it is an act of the sovereign God. Those who went were moved to do so, which undoubtedly means that some were not yet moved because their time had not yet come. Now, we have a couple of examples from sages in the room that you're going to want to glean from. Look, you may wonder how will all Israel be saved? Because God will move them and stir them to be saved. Yeah. That's how. But even in our practical examples, I don't know why I was stirred and moved and my wife was stirred and moved so that we felt like we had no choice but to move to a state we did not want to live in and start this work. But we were. And then at some point, that's like first wave, establish a temple, establish an altar. At some point, God stirred and moved the hearts of the Piros to come and build on what was already established. That's like the second wave. And we spent years wondering, why, why Piros didn't y'all come with us? Why didn't y'all go first and then we get to come? The answer is quite simple. We did it in the order God stirred us. And then third, just like Nehemiah arriving on the scene, God sent the Sutherlands. Well, why? Why all of those years? Why that time? Because it's the order that God established it in. And you say, but wait, we had choices. Yeah, you're responsible for those. And the sovereignty of God moved you when it was time. Saints, we can rest in the sovereignty of God without excusing ourselves from choices. Verse 6, brother. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free law. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Look, more than likely on another evening in the coming chapters, we will discuss these things further. But Cyrus brought out all of the articles that he had. This is definitely not all of the original articles found within Solomon's temple. Where's the ark? For the sake of time utilization, we want to keep reading together and we are going to spend weeks exploring the topics that are laid down here. Verse 8. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Bishmedeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we're well aware that you have questions about the articles, that you have questions about the identity of Sheshbazar. And if you don't, it's because you haven't engaged with this book at all yet or listened to us in the last hour and 52 minutes. In the sovereignty of God, somebody say sovereignty. Sovereignty. In the sovereignty of God, we have decided, at least we believe it was our decision, to to reserve those answers for our next sessions. 
Tonight, we'd like to end our time with a restatement of the need to reprioritize and prioritize the sacred before that which brings you security. Because we think that's a theme that goes through this entire book. I want to start with you in Deuteronomy 4, 39, and our closing volley here. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today, so that, somebody say so, so that, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Obedience to the sacred comes before security. Obedience to the sacred will yield security. But seeking security before the sacred will send you to hell. Listen to Malachi 3, 10 through 12. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now this verse is Peshatly talking about tithes, but what it is speaking of, more importantly, is the need to put the sacred first, and then see what God does after that. And he says, test me in this. Yeah. Paul, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Anything. Engage with that for a second. Ask me anything. Anything you want. It's yours. It's yours. Solomon answered God, You've shown great kindness to David my father, and have made me king in his place. Now... Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? God, give me what is sacred so that I can perpetuate your sacredness on the earth. Give me what I need to lead your people that your sacredness will be glorified. God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given to you, and I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who is before you ever had, and none after you will have. Guys, the shalom that occurred during the reign of King Solomon was unprecedented in all of history. This was because of this particular passage, the yearning of his heart. I said, God, give me what is sacred to you to uphold your sacred nature first. And whatever else happens after that, I accept. Let's keep going. This is Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
has enough trouble of its own. When you are constantly fighting for security and you're worried about tomorrow, but you have yet to take your stand for what is sacred and ordained by the sovereign God in your life today, you will never be secure. You'll always be fighting to save yourself from tomorrow when God called you to stand and protect what is sacred today. That's a good word. All right, y'all ready? Yeah. Yes. Still awake for our last three minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody say, seek. Seek. The sacred. The sacred. Thanks. We are learning to get our order correct. Revelation 3.12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Sounds pretty secure to me. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and on my new name. Thanks. We want to tell you this body is heading for conflict. We're plunging headlong against the world, against the worldly church, against everything that wants to oppose God's will on earth. But his word instructs us that the one who conquers, the one who puts his life on the line for what is sacred, the one who seeks what is sacred first, we will have an eternal temple, a secure place for all of eternity if we are willing to risk it now, just like Ezra and Nehemiah. All of the prophets tell us this. Every man under his own vine tree, every man sitting in his own grove. The goal is that you seek sacred now, forsaking security, and God will give you security later. This is something that must be corrected in our daily practice. And since I have 2 minutes and 23 seconds, Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for 3 months after he was born. Because they saw he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Come on. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. This book is founded upon the principle that you seek what is sacred and you do not worry about security, therefore God will make you eternally secure. There is no other order, no other pattern with which you can pursue Him. If you seek security before you seek the sacred, it will damn you. But if you seek that which is sacred at the expense of your security then you will end up in an eternally secure kingdom that cannot be lost, moths cannot destroy, and thieves cannot steal. At this point, we'd like to turn this meeting over to the pastors. Stand to your feet with this church. We cannot choose to go after our own security. We must go after the sacred. We're going to have to get it out of our minds that the security is okay to even put on the list. The only thing that we can seek after is what that which is sacred. We're going to see it in the weeks ahead of how the very first thing that Ezra builds is the, temp- is the altar itself. Going after those things which are holy, which are righteous, 
which are sacred, and everything else falls in line after that. Here in this passage that you see on the screen, choosing rather to be mistreated, intentionally going away from the security that only seems reasonable to the natural mind, but is against that which God has intended for us as a people. We have to go after that which is sacred. Man, it is so good to be back here on a Tuesday night. And what you feel is these men have stirred us. They've let you know that there are waves and waves and waves of what God intends to accomplish. We're going to get into some incredible things, but what these men have already presented is enough for us to chew on right now, tonight, and for the days and weeks that are coming. You cannot go after that which causes you to feel secure. You must pursue with all of that you are that which is sacred and let God deal with the rest. Lift up your hands to his throne. Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you for your spirit and word. Lord, speaking through your prophets to stir our hearts and our souls. Lord, to move us off of laziness and apathy in regard to the holiness of your name and the sanctity of your word. Lord, let your word come alive in us as we show the diligence to study and seek your face within it. Lord, let it cut deep within our hearts. Lord, let it transform our hearts and minds. And Lord, may we seek the sacredness of who you are and that be the sole aim of all of our efforts in life. We love you, mighty God, and we thank you for this word tonight. Amen. Amen. Amen.